So when I was in fourth grade, does anybody remember fourth grade? How many people remember fourth grade? That either means something really cool happened or something really bad happened. Because to remember fourth grade means that something has to stick out. Well, for me, it was bad. Um, something ha- we had the, our school was set up so where you would go from um, in fourth grade, you moved up to fifth grade at a new school. And so they had this thing called the fourth grade camping trip, and everyone looked forward to it. It was this coolest thing ever. It's like the first time you're really away from home for a long period of time as a fourth grader. How old are you at four? Like, or in fourth grade, how old are you? Ten, nine, ten, something like that. So like you're not away from home too much. Maybe you're sleeping over at friends' houses and stuff like that. But we were gone for a week at this camp. Many of the parents of the kids that would come would be some of the counselors. Uh, my mom was not one of them. And um, so I'm there, and I'm by myself. And um, so <laughs> we're in the cabins, and one of my friends, and we didn't have digital cameras back then, okay? We, ha- we didn't have camera phones. So thank goodness they couldn't upload anything right to Facebook back then because this would have been horrendous. But I'm, we're in the bunks, and we're all getting changed and stuff. And this one kid who was kind of a punk in our class, he decides to take a picture of me in my little skivvies, in my undies, my tidy whities as a fourth grader, Boop, boop, that's all I got on because I'm changing. We're in the bunks. We're supposed to, we can do that. And he takes his picture. Now, I knew he took the picture. And so I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm thinking in my mind, what is going to happen? How, what's going to happen with that picture? Because as a fourth grader, there's a lot at stake, right? You're, you're not really, you're kind of, you're not really sure of yourself. You're kind of insecure. And I wasn't really the most popular kid in my class. Um, so, you know, there's this big thing going on uh, in my mind of what is going to happen with this picture? Where is it going to show up? So I decide I got to get out of here because I can't handle this place anymore. So I write a letter home. We can write letters at night to our parents. So I write a letter. It's like this happened the first night. So I write home and I'm like, it's like a plea. It's like all capital letters. Please come get me. I hate it here. I didn't tell her exactly what happened. Like, how do you write that? They took a picture of me in my underwear. Like, you don't want to write that out. It's hard enough to think about it. You don't want to articulate it on paper and stare at it. So I'm just like, you got to come get me, you know. And then I'm kind of talking about a couple of the fun things we did. Like, you know, we went swimming and that was fun, but please come get me. And then the food's okay. That's cool, but please come get me. Like, the whole letter was basically a plea. Mom, come get me. I want to go home. So my mom receives it. I don't know what she did with it because she never came. Well, she came eventually at the end of the week. That would be weird if I'm still there. (laughs) That'd be really weird. Mike, you can go home now. You're old enough to go home now. You can do that. Um, so, so she comes at the end of the week, and I'm like, Mom, didn't you get my letter? I sent you a letter. She goes, yeah, it was so cute. Thank you. I'm like, it wasn't supposed to be cute. It was a plea to come get me. Please come pick me up. Get me out of this place. And she goes, oh, Michael, you did fine. That was my, that was my mom's classic move. Oh, Michael. Every time I, oh, Michael. So that, she, she pulled that out. She pulled the oh, Michael move. Oh, Michael, you were fine. And I'm, I'm thinking my mom, I'm thinking in my mind, mom, you have no idea what just happened. They took pictures of me in my underwear, and it's going to go all around school. And lo and behold, a few days later, we're all gathered around the, uh, the, the flagpole at our school. That was the big gathering spot. And everyone's looking at this picture of me. And I walk out, and I'm like, hey, guys, how you doing? <laughs> and they're like, it's you in your underwear right here. I'm looking at it. <laughs> and there's girls here, and it's weird because you're in your underwear, and there's girls looking at it. Why would, why would that happen to me? Can you explain this to me? God, why did that happen to me? Why did you put this? Why did you put this in my lap? So um, I'm so embarrassed. My face probably turned red. I turned around. I didn't even want to be part of that conversation because they're just laughing and giggling and looking at me and looking at the picture and like, 
I'm like, this has just got to go. So anyway, all that to say that sometimes we can, I wrote that letter and it was intended for a very specific purpose. It was intended for my mom to come get me. My mom interpreted it as a really cute letter from her son at camp. And that was not why I wrote it. I didn't write it to tell her about camp. I wrote it to tell her to get me out of camp. And what I want you to see is when we look at the Bible, God wrote it for a very specific purpose. And um, he wants us to interpret it and, and engage with it a very specific way. And, un- unlike, and much like my mom who misinterpreted what I was trying to say, we sometimes go into the Word, go into the Bible, and we can misinterpret, we can take it, oh, things from it that God may not have exactly wanted us to take from it. We can pull things out of context. We can um, you know, do all sorts of different things. And so my hope today is that looking at the purpose behind the book of Acts, we can kind of get, and we're going to go through a certain portion of Scripture. But a lot of times people take out of the book of Acts things that maybe, um, there's a lot of formulas that are created out of the book of Acts. Like, how is the Holy Spirit going to work in this situation? Well, let's look at the book of Acts and see how he worked. He doesn't always work the same way, right? He doesn't always do the same thing every time in all people at all places. He's the Holy Spirit. He's sovereign. He can do what he wants when he wants to do it. And so... Um, I think it's really interesting. You may not have known this, because up until maybe a few years ago, um, I wasn't even aware of this um, about the book of Acts or even some of the Gospels. Uh, If you didn't know this, um, Luke wrote the book of Acts. He wrote the book of Luke first, then he wrote the book of Acts as a second letter. Um, And if you didn't know this, Luke wrote to um, someone very specific. And every Gospel writer has their audience, Uh, Matthew writes to a Jewish audience because he wants to tell the Jews that your long-awaited Messiah is Jesus. You don't have to wait anymore. It's Jesus. So all through the book of Matthew, he's very specifically geared towards Jewish customs, Jewish beliefs, Jewish understanding. Uh, Mark is very Gentile. Mark is writing to the Gentiles. Every time he, he talks about a Jewish custom, he usually explains what that custom was because he knew that his listeners, his readers, weren't going to know what he's talking about. So he had to describe it. Um, because Jesus uh, came to fulfill all of those things. And without knowing the Jewish customs, it's very hard to understand why Jesus did many of the things that he did and said many of the things that he said. John is kind of a mix between the two. Um, so Luke, however, um, you, you, know, you can look at the book of Romans. It's written to the whole um, place of Rome. You look at like Thess- Thessalonians and Colossians. It's written to churches and Ephesians. It's written to large groups of people. But Luke is very, very, very unique because it's written to one person. Check it out in Luke 1. Luke 1 says this, many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. So he's basically saying everyone's been talking about this Jesus guy and a lot of people are writing about him. They used the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. So disciples left reports and they were using them and they were investigating. They were making sure it lined up with what really happened in history. You know, it'd be like... Um, you know, if I told you I flew around today in the air and I flew among you, you know, no one would believe that because you're here. If I next week say, remember when I flew? You'd be like, no, because I was there. So the same thing is true about this. Their disciples gave them words and they were making sure that what they said was true. Um, He says, having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I, Luke, have also decided to write a careful account for you, most honorable Theophilus. One guy. Did you know that Luke was written to one guy? One dude. It is like Luke wanted this guy to know that what he heard, what he heard about Jesus, what he knew of Jesus so far was true. Because it says, um, you most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. So this guy, Theophilus, was taught something about Jesus, and Luke 
writes an entire letter. Think about it like this. It is like you caring so much about one of your friends that you chuck them an email filled with links to YouTube videos and, and documents and, and all this sorts of stuff for evidence about who Jesus is and how you can believe in him and who he is and how you receive forgiveness through Jesus. And you, set, you hit that send button and you send them a well-documented, a well-investigated document to them proving, helping them understand Jesus. This is what he did. Luke simply, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, all their culture, he basically sent an email to his friend. And we get to read it. That he investigated and investigated and investigated. He says, having carefully invested. One dude. Now Luke wrote um, his gospel to provide evidence that Jesus was who he says he was and that he did what he said he did. So that was the point. Trust Jesus. Theophilus, if there's anything you need to do, trust Jesus. He's the guy. Now, when he writes Acts... Same author, Luke. Go to Acts 1. He says, In my first book, I told you, Theophilus. There he is again. Did you even notice that name was there? <laughs> Sometimes we, I'm like, you know, when I first started realizing this, I'm like, how many times I read Acts and I never even thought of the idea that he's talking to one guy? You know, you, sometimes you don't even, it just glosses over your head. So in my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. So then he goes on and basically goes through the next phase of after that. So he talked about, in, in Luke, he talked about up to that point, and then in Acts, it goes a little bit farther. And so he's still talking to this one guy. It's another letter to this guy, Theophilus. So, and it's, I want you to understand that the primary goal behind both books is evangelism. The primary goal is to convince Theophilus, one guy, I love you so much, Theophilus, that I want you to be convinced that Jesus is who he says he is. And then after he died, Theophilus, I'm going to write you another letter and I'm going to show you just how powerful he is, that even in his death, he is doing remarkable things, that even in his death, he's still going, that even in his death, he's still saving, he's still doing miraculous things, he's still moving among his people. It's in a different way, but he's still doing it. So I don't want you to give up hope because he died. This guy I'm talking about, Jesus, yes, he died on a cross for the sins of mankind, but then he rose back to life and he's alive. And Theophilus, I want you to get it. I want you to understand how, how awesome this is. So um, with all of that being said, we have to look at the book of, of Acts through the eyes of an evangelist. Now, if you don't know what the term evangelist means, I always thought evangelist um, was the idea of someone who just preached a message. In fact, um, that's why it's called good news. Evangelists were also called heralds. And back in biblical times, if someone won a war, they would send these people called heralds to the cities because they didn't have Facebook and Twitter and email and texting and all this other sorts of stuff to, t to send messages to each other. They had to send people on horses to go and tell them, guys, we won. The war is over. It's done. You don't have to worry about it anymore. You don't have to cower in your houses anymore. You don't have to gather your kids inside anymore. We have won the war. It's over. You are free to go. You are not captives any longer. They would send heralds, which were also called evangelists. That's why evangelists, when you think of the term, should think of good news. We are simply saying the war is over. Jesus has won. Jesus won the war. You don't, have to, you don't have to remain in hiding anymore. You don't have to be confused anymore. You don't have to be guilt-ridden anymore. God, through Jesus, has completely and wholly and totally eradicated all that stuff from your life. And that when you come to him, you find new life. You find forgiveness of sin. So um, in the idea of that, that's an evangelist. That's what we do um, when we speak the word of God boldly. We are evangelists. We are hopefully, hopefully um, um, projecting that the, the good news that the war is over.
We're not putting more demands on people. We're not making them feel more guilty. We're not putting more things on them to have to accomplish in order to get into the fold that Jesus has already conquered over. So we're going to go to Acts 13. If you have a Bible, you can read along with me. We're going to read literally the whole chapter. You're welcome. And we're going to work through it because there's two things in here that happen, and there's a whole big list of um, things that that, uh, Luke talks about that Paul says in his uh, sermon here when they give him an opportunity that is very important. So, now remember, just like my mom, we can't misinterpret this. This is an evangelist, an an evangelistic book. It is meant to, to help us believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he's still alive today. It's meant to reveal to us the goodness of God through Jesus. So, um, Acts 13 says, Among the prophets and teachers of the church of Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, Simon, uh, Menaean. If I'm not saying these right, I don't really care because I don't even know. So, and Saul... And one day, as these, and so Saul's there, and so, uh, who was also named Paul. You probably know Saul as Paul. Uh, one day, as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Dedicate Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them. All right. So the Holy Spirit is, is, is uh, taking those two people and giving them something very specific. So it goes on in verse 3. So after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. Prayed for them. Lord be with you. They blessed them, and then they sent them away. Go do your thing. So Barnabas and Saul were sent by the Holy Spirit. That's very important. They were sent by the Holy Spirit. They didn't choose among themselves. They felt called by God, blessed by God, honored by God, and then sent out by the Holy Spirit. They went down to the seaport of Seleucia and then sailed to the island of Cyprus. There in the town of Salamis, I don't know how to say any of these things, so, and I don't really care because they're not my town. So as long as I can say Williamson, it's all I'm good. Or Ontario. I'm good to go. So Salamis, I'm guessing. And then they went to the Jewish synagogues and preached the word of God. John Mark went with them as their assistant. Um, Afterward, they traveled from town to town across the entire island until they finally reached Paphos, where they met a Jewish sorcerer, a false prophet. A false prophet, a Jewish sorcerer. He had attached himself to the governor, Sergius Paulus, who was an intelligent man. So he's basically walking around with this, with this guy, Sergius, and he's, just, he's, he's doing whatever he, sorcerers do. He's, he's convincing him of their magical ways. He's pulling them away from the idea of Jesus. Um, so the governor invited Barnabas and, and Saul to visit him, for he wanted to hear the word of God. So he knew that they were guys that were talking about Jesus, that were preaching the word of God. And he actually says in his sends for them and says, come and tell me about this word of God. Can you believe that? He actually asks them to come to him. Can you imagine it being at your house? Imagine if that was like a real service. You could call a number and be like, hey, yeah, um, I'm looking for someone to preach the word of God to me. Can you send someone to my house? Sir, yes, sir, right away. We will do that right away. Jimmy, we got a call for you at uh, Williamson. Go preach the word of God. That's kind of like what he did. He calls for them, come visit me and tell me about the word of God. But... Alemus, the sorcerer, as his, name, as his name means in Greek, interfered and urged the governor to pay no attention to what Barnabas and Saul said. It's kind of, he's like, hey, don't listen to them. They don't know what they're talking about. Just listen to me. I'm what you, you trust me, right? Okay, shh, just don't listen. This is what he's doing, right in his little ear. He was trying to keep the governor from believing. That's his motive. Keep that in, keep that in your noggin. He's trying to keep the governor from believing. 
Do you know that there are opposing forces to the gospel message of Jesus Christ that are trying to convince you to not believe? At this very moment, there are opposing forces that are coming against the purest message of all time, the good news of Jesus, and it is opposing it at every, in every way at this very moment. And here we see the sorcerer. He was trying to keep the governor from believing. There is, there is somebody, his name is Satan, who is trying to keep you from believing. Saul, also known as Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit. Very important, filled with the Holy Spirit. And he said, and he looked at this, this is my favorite part of the whole thing. I just, this is my favorite part because it's just, you can't say this without being filled with the Holy Spirit and get away with it. He looked at the sorcerer in the eye and then he said, you son of the devil. Whoa. Watch your mouth, potty mouth Paul. What's wrong with you? You son of the devil, full of every sort of deceit and fraud. Now, remind, now remember, he's looking right at his, he's looking in his eye. You son of the devil. How dare you? He is getting up in his face and he is not backing down. He says, you son of the devil, full of every sort of deceit and fraud, an enemy of all that is good. You enemy of all that is good. Everything good, you hate it. There's nothing good in you. Everything good you hate. He says, will you never stop perverting the true ways of the Lord? He is throwing this dude under the bus. Right in his eye. Now let me be clear. This is why you can't misinterpret this and pull my mom and, and, and just think however you want. You cannot run up to people and call them sons of devils. Okay? You can't go up to someone opposing, you son of the devil! Wait, I gotta read it. You, full of every sort of deceit and fraud and enemy of all that is good. Wow, that was hard. I know, that's what it says I'm supposed to say to you. It's not necessarily what it means. He is filled with the Holy Spirit. The, now, get this. The Spirit is saying that to him. Paul is not saying that. We have to understand that Paul was not, was not um, at, at the mercy of an emotional response that he was angry. The Holy Spirit was doing this. God himself, speaking through Paul, was telling this to the sorcerer, you son of the devil. He says, watch now, for the Lord has his hand of punishment upon you, and you will be struck blind. You will not see the sunlight for some time. You won't see the sun. Now, you can't say that unless you're going to back that up, because you're only going to look foolish, right? If I go up to someone and I'm like, you are going to be struck blind in the name of Jesus, and then they're like, I see you. That didn't work. I don't know. You look silly now. Kind of look dumb. Instantly, mist and darkness came over the man's eyes, and he began groping around, begging for someone to take his hand and lead him. Evidence. Now, I want you to remember, this is not made up. This is factual information that Luke investigated and talked to eyewitnesses, talked to the governor, talked to people. Um, whoever he needed to talk to, he talked to them, because it's not in the book unless it's been proven to Luke. That's why you have to think through the eyes of an evangelist, the eyes of an investigator. Luke is writing this to provide evidence for Theophilus of the true nature of the gospel of Jesus. So I can be sure that this happened because Luke investigated. It's not made up. He's not getting secondhand knowledge. He has investigated, investigated, investigated. So this blind guy, um, sorcerer, who's been trying to thwart the word of God into this, um, into this governor, then it says in verse 12, it says, When the governor saw what had happened, he became a believer, for he was astonished at the teaching about the Lord. Do you notice he wasn't aston astonished at the blind guy? 
He wasn't astonished. He wasn't fearful that he might be blind. Well, if I don't accept Jesus, I'm going to be blind too. I believe. I believe. Don't blind me. He didn't do that. It says that he became a believer for he was astonished at the teaching about the Lord. That whatever was taught to him about Jesus, whatever was taught to him about the creator, about God, moved in his heart and he became a believer that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. Moving on. Verse 13. So Paul and his companions uh, then left Paphos by a ship for Pamphylia, landing at the port town of Perga. There John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. That's where the whole controversy comes between John Mark and leaving Paul and Barnabas and, and all that stuff. Um, but Paul and Barnabas traveled um, inland to Antioch of Pisidia. On the Sabbath day, they went to the synagogue for the services. So they're going to church. It's basically what they did. They went to the temple to the church that morning. Um, so that on Sabbath, which was when they would normally have the, the, the teachings, the, the temple time, after the usual readings from the book of Moses and the prophets, those in charge of the service sent them this message. Brothers, you ha- if you have any word of encouragement for the people, come and give it. So the whole service gets over. It'd be like at the end of our service here if we had really special guests, like if someone really important was here, you know, um, you know when we had Rock the Lakes, uh, Franklin Graham, you know, was the speaker, and he's a well-known uh, evangelist. So let's say he was at our church, and, you know, at the end of our message, we were like, Franklin, if you'd like to share any words, you know, come up and share. That's basically what the idea is. They, they were giving them permission to come and share their heart with the people that were there, um, acknowledging that they were there. So... Um, And then they learned to regret it because of what they say. But it says, So Paul stood and lifted his hand to quiet them and started speaking. So whatever reason, there's there's commotion. He's got to, he lifts his hand. Please be, you know, be quiet. I'm going to, I'm going to talk. I'm going to say some stuff. I need you to be quiet and listen. So he lifts his hand to quiet them and starts speaking. He says, Men of Israel, and you God-fearing Gentiles, listen to me. So he's speaking to two people. Men of Israel, Israelites, Jewish descent, and God-fearing Gentiles. Now, if you don't know this about Gentiles, because that word is thrown around a lot in the New Testament, and we talk about it a lot, the, the word Gentile simply means non-Jewish. It's all it means. If you're not Jewish, you're Gentile. So you could be Roman, you could be anything, but you're Gentile because you're not Jewish. That's all that means. And because the Jewish people were God's chosen people as the Israelites to, um, to do God's work, they have this special privilege in their mind and in their hearts. They have this special privilege that they are God's um, vessels, God's people. And so the Gentiles often feel like secondhand citizens in the Jewish culture because they're not as cool, they're not as good, they're not elitists like the Jewish people. So, they, so, so here's um, Paul making it very clear that I'm talking to both of you. No one is left out of this. So the message that I'm going to give you is for two groups, the supposed spiritual elite and the supposed second nature. He says, the God of Israel, the God of this nation of Israel chose our ancestors and made them multiply and grow during, the day, during their stay in Egypt. Then with a powerful arm, he's basically going to go through some of the Old Testament stories. So this is what we're going to read. He says, then with a powerful arm, he led them out of slavery. He put up with them through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Then he destroyed seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to Israel as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years, generations upon generations People are being born and passing away and getting married and, and having kids and all this time they're wandering and it took 450 years. After that, God gave them judges to rule until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people begged for a king and God gave them Saul, son of Kish. So they're basically, he's, he's illustrating, you're looking for rulers. You're looking for people to rule. You're looking for people to lead you. So he gave you judges. 
And then that wasn't good enough, so he gave you kings because you wanted a, a ruler to really rule and have power and, and bring um, some, some stability to the land. And, and so he gave you Saul, and then, uh, but God removed Saul, it says, uh, for, uh, who reigned for 40 years. But God removed Saul and replaced him with David, a man about whom God said, I have, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. So he's, he's uh, indicating to David because um, the Jewish people would know that this David guy was a great king. And now he's going to tell them about Jesus. And it is one of King David's descendants, this guy, King David, that you hold in this high regard, that you really like, that you talk about a lot. Yeah. He is one of King David's, this, uh, and it is one of King David's descendants, Jesus, who is God's promised Savior of Israel. So if any, he's based, he, just, he just dropped the bomb. I want you to understand that that statement right there was the bomb. It was mushroom cloud. Because he just told all the Jewish people there that if you're still waiting for a Messiah, you're going to be waiting a long time because his name's Jesus. He's already come. It's one of David's descendants, just like the prophet said it would be. He was born right where he said he would be born. Every, he's trying to, he's trying to uh, have a case here that Jesus was who he says he was. Before he came, John the, John the Baptist preached that all the people of Israel needed to repent of their sins and turn to God and be baptized. As John was finishing his ministry, he asked, Do you think I am the Messiah? No, I am not. Do you think I am? Uh, no, I am not. But he is coming soon, and I'm not even worthy to be his, be his slave and untie his sandals on his feet. So this guy, uh, John the Baptist, who everyone looked really highly upon, basically puts him in this very um, low position before Jesus. I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals of his feet, on his feet. Brothers, you sons of Abraham, now check that out. First he says, you sons of the devil, to the sorcerer. Now he says, you sons of Abraham, which is not a compliment, by the way. It's a compliment if that's what you're holding your security to, because what they believed, that if I'm a son of Abraham, if I'm in the descent of Abraham, if, I'm an, if, Dave, if, if Abraham is part of my ancestry, then I'm safe. I'm good to go. I don't have to do anything else because my ancestor, Abraham, who was the father of the Jewish nation, I don't, I'm done. I can just claim that. He's, my, he's my, you know, my spiritual father. He's my ancestral father. So he says, all of you, sons of Abraham, and you also, God-fearing Gentiles, this message of salvation has been sent to us. Wait a minute. The Jews are like, we don't need a message of salvation. We're sons of Abraham. What do we need a message of salvation for? The people in Jerusalem and the leaders did not recognize Jesus as the one the prophets had spoken about. Right there it is. They didn't see Jesus as the ones the prophets were taught. Instead, they condemned him. And in doing this, they fulfilled the prophets. Remember that? They didn't believe Jesus was who he says. That's why he went to the cross, because they believed he was speaking this message that wasn't of God. He was claiming to be God. And if you're going to claim to be God, you either are God or you're a kook. I mean, there's only two ways to go about it. If you're going to walk around saying, I'm God... It's either true or you need to be in a loony bin. One of those two things. So it says that um, instead they condemned him in doing this, they fulfilled the prophet's words that are read every Sabbath. He basically just said, everything you read this morning was about Jesus. Everything you read in the scriptures when you opened it up during the Sabbath temple time that we just had before we came up and talked, every single word that was spoken was about Jesus. Every single word was about the coming Messiah, and his name is Jesus. And then it says they found no legal reason to execute him, but they asked Pilate to have him killed anyway. Remember that? 
They couldn't think of a reason to kill Jesus. They couldn't think of any legal reason. There's nothing he did wrong in steal. He didn't kill. He didn't do anything. But they wanted him killed anyway because he was causing too much of a ruckus. He was stirring the people's hearts away from this, the Sabbath time, away from the, the rituals, away from the sacrifices and putting their faith in Jesus, which is what Jesus came to accomplish. It says, when they had done all that, the prop, when they had, when they had done uh, all that the prophecy said about him, they took him down from the cross and placed him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead, exclamation point in my version. God raised him from the dead. And over a period of many days, he appeared to those who had gone with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. Theophilus, Jesus is not dead. I'm telling everyone here, look at what I'm telling to the Jewish people, look what I'm telling to the Gentiles. Jesus is alive, proving that he is the Messiah, the coming Savior. It says, and they are now witnesses, uh, they are now witnesses to the people of Israel. The people that saw this happen, the people that he appeared to after he was risen from the dead, after he died and rose again, he appeared to many people, and they are witnesses. He's basically telling um, all of them, including Theophilus, look, if you want to talk to some of these guys, you can talk to them. You can ask them, did Jesus really rise? Did you really see him? Was it a hallucination? Were you on drugs? What was going on, bro? Like, what happened? Did you really see this dead guy? Everyone says he's dead, but you say you saw him. You and a lot of other people. And now we are here, this is them still speaking in the synagogue, and now we are here to bring you this good news. And good news is capitalized, good news. It's the gospel message. It's good news because it's already been done. The war is over. The promise was made to our ancestors and God has now fulfilled it for us, their descendants by raising Jesus. This is what the second Psalm says about Jesus. You are my son, today I have become your father. For God had promised to raise him from the dead, not leaving him to rot in the grave, God raised him from the dead. He did not rot in the grave. Do you realize that Jesus is alive? He's alive. He can speak to us. We can speak to him. He can tell us. He can lead us. He can, he, he's our savior. Another psalm explains it more fully. You will not allow your holy one to rot in the grave. This is not a reference to David, for after David had done the will of God in his own generation, he died and was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. No, it was a reference to someone else. So all the way back when that guy was writing that psalm, he was talking about Jesus. Something the law of Moses could never do. Or, I'm sorry, everyone who believes in him is declared right with God. Something the law of Moses could never do. He's talking to people that are trying to get people to follow the law. And he just said verbally to everyone there, you can't get right with God by following the law. It's only through Jesus. That is some crazy stuff to be speaking in the middle of this synagogue. Everyone who believes in him, Jesus, is declared right with God, something the law of God, the law of Moses could never do because they held the law of Moses to utmost degree. Be careful. Don't let the prophet's words apply to you, for they said, look, you mockers, be amazed and die, for I am doing something in your own day, something you wouldn't even believe if, even if someone told you about it. He's saying, don't be the mocker who looks around and see God doing great things and, and destroys its opportunity to do something in the hearts of others by mocking it and making fun of it and, pre and thinking it's not of God. He's basically saying, if you don't think this is God's message, you're that mocker. This prophecy is about you. I'm, I'm going to guess that Paul and Barnabas weren't invited back to this church anymore. <laughs> Just going to say. All the people that, everyone's looking back at the guys that uh, invited him up. I can just see it. 
Everyone's getting enraged. So as Paul and Barnabas left the synagogue that day, the, pap- the people begged them to speak about the things and again next week. So all the people that loved this message, that were, that were, that were being um, engaged with God, that were thinking bigger things about Jesus and thinking about who he was, they want, him to, they want these guys to come back. Many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. So he's, they're actually collecting a number of people that are putting their faith in Jesus, being removed from the, the sacrificial system, saying Jesus is the way, not the sacrifices. And follow Paul and, the two men, and the two men urged them to continue to rely on the grace of God. He's saying, don't follow us, rely on the grace of God. Don't rely on us, rely on the grace of God. So, this is another one. This is like my second favorite part. Because I already said it, my other one was my favorite part. And it is. This is my second. The following week, almost the entire city turned out to hear them preach the word of the Lord. Word spreads. And what must have been maybe a dinky little church, a dinky little synagogue, has spread to this enormous gathering of almost the entire city turning out to hear Barnabas and Paul. Now, I'm sure some of it was probably because they've, it's controversial what they're saying, but some of it is these Gentiles going out and telling people, this, this guy, Jesus, he's the one. He's the Savior. We don't have to do all these sacrifices that we could never do because we're not of Jewish descent. We can go to Jesus These guys are talking about this guy like he's the Savior. Come and hear them talk. So the next time, the following week, so they stuck around for a week, so I guess they didn't kill him in a week. Those guys that invite him up, they they stuck around for a week, and the next week, everyone comes. But when some of the Jews saw the crowds, they were jealous. Mm. They see all these people responding to Barnabas and Paul, and they're like, they don't respond to us like that. We can't get, we, we've been trying to get this whole town to come to this temple for how long? Nobody ever comes? Man, we've sent out packets. We've, we, we, we've done all this stuff. We've made a Facebook page. No one comes. <laughs> Nobody, why, why are these guys so big? How come what they're saying is making such a difference? It says that they were jealous, so they slandered Paul and argued against whatever he said. I can only imagine them as they're sitting down and they're listening to what they're saying. They're just jotting down notes of what they're going to say when they get to speak again about everything that they said that's wrong. Then Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and declared, It was necessary that we first preach the word of God to you Jews. But since you have rejected it and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we will offer it to the Gentiles, let me unpack this. This is where we're going to sit for a few minutes. The Jewish people knew the prophecies. The Gentiles didn't. The Jewish people were the ones God was speaking through and to to provide evidence, to provide understanding of who to look for in the Messiah. All those words are documented in the Old Testament. And so the Jewish custom, the Jewish people would know this is what you should look for. However, when that guy came, when Jesus came, they rejected it. And so he said, I had to tell you first because if anybody's going to recognize Jesus, it's going to be you because you already know all the prophecies. So all I have to do is show you how Jesus uh, fulfilled them and you'll believe. That's all I got to do for you. But with the Gentiles, I actually have to convince them that they need a Savior. Then I have to convince them that Jesus is the Savior because he did all these laws that they don't even know about. So I have to proclaim all the laws. I have to proclaim all the stuff. I have to tell them all this extra information just so they'll come to salvation. But you, you want salvation. You're looking for a Messiah. You're waiting for him. So when I tell you about him, you're probably going to be like, dude, let's go worship Jesus. He's here. We're done. 
and they don't. It was necessary that we first preach the word of God to you Jews because you'll get it. But then he says, but since you didn't get it and you rejected it, which judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Now that's a shot right to the jugular because they just said, it's not good enough that you're sons of Abraham. You've rejected the Savior. You've rejected the Savior. I don't care who your spiritual dad is. I don't care who you were born from. I don't care what your ancestry says. Jesus is the only way. But since you've rejected it and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we will offer it to the Gentiles. We will offer it to those that would seem unworthy of the message. For the, good, for the Lord gave us this command when he said, I have, I have made you light to the Gentiles to bring salvation to the farthest corners of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, go figure, they were very glad and thankful and thanked the Lord for his message. I love that they thanked the Lord. They didn't thank Paul and Barnabas. They didn't say, thank you for getting in their face. Thank you for yelling at those bad Jewish guys. Yeah, they always leave us out of the temple worship. Thank you. Tell them where it is. Yeah. Take that, Jews. That's not what they're doing. They're going, thank you, God, for receiving us too. Thank you, God, for even taking somebody like us, who, you, who isn't a chosen people, who, who feel much like a second-hand citizen, a second-class person. Thank you, God, for this message that they've brought us, that even me, even us, even all these people who are non-Jewish can be part of your plan of salvation. It says, And all who were chosen for eternal life became believers. So the Lord's message spread throughout that region. Good news, there's only three verses left in the chapter. Okay, you're all good? Okay, three verses. Then we're going to recap a couple things to kind of put some wheels on this. Then the Jews stirred up the influential religious women and leaders of the city, and they incited a mob against Paul and Barnabas and ran them out of town. They're so sick of them. How dare you talk to the people that we had control? We had control over these Gentiles. We had power over them. They were, they were dependent on our sacrifices. Now they can just go be with Jesus and they don't have to do any of the things that we want them to do. So they shook the dust from their feet as a sign of rejection and went to the town of Iconium. And the believers were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now, if you were to read, we're not going to, but if you were to read the first seven verses of chapter 14, that happens all over again. They go and they preach a message. The Jews are angry. The Gentiles are liberated. And there's a, there's a, a stirring and they get kicked out. I love it because that's exactly what the gospel message will do. The gospel message will offend anyone and everyone who wants, to be, who wants power and will offend anybody who has an interest in only doing what they're interested in doing. But the gospel message will liberate those that come to Jesus. The gospel message liberates those who recognize slavery. The gospel message is liberating. It's victory in the name of Jesus. And so these guys can get it. Now, here's the thing I need to ask you um, some questions. Because as we look at this whole thing, we have to go back to the idea that he's writing this to a guy who isn't quite sure what to do with Jesus. Theophilus. Can't forget about Theophilus. Because this was all written, everything was carefully thought out of what stories, what things can I point to that will provide evidence. And it's everywhere the Holy Spirit is doing his work. Because Jesus is gone, but Jesus said in the Gospels, it's good that I go because then I get to give you the advocate, 
I get to send you the Holy Spirit who won't just tell you things about me. He will live inside of you. You see, we look at people like Moses and we're like, man, if I lived back in those days and I saw the parting of the Red Sea, I'd be like, damn, I'm going to worship God too. Who can do that? Right? You think of that. We think if we're back then, if I was back then and I saw the stuff they saw, of fire, and, of, uh, fire and a cloud by, by night and a cloud by day and, and you know, manna falling from heaven and, and birds falling from heaven and all this crazy stuff going on, people being uh, changing the pillars of salt. Man, I'd be like, man, that's a, that's a God I can get behind. I don't know about the pillars of salt part. That one might, that one might, might divert my attention. But here's the thing, that as, as all those things are true about back then, do you know what Moses would say to us? Moses would say, dude, we saw the Holy Spirit doing stuff, but what was it like to have him living in you? Dude, we saw God work, but that God that worked externally lives in you internally. That must have been amazing. When we get to heaven, Moses is going to be like, dude, you guys are so lucky. And we're, 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 we're down here going, man, Moses was so lucky. <laughs> we get the better end of the deal. We have the Holy Spirit living in us, directing us, guiding us every single day. We don't have to go to a temple with a sacrifice. We can go to the throne room of God any second of our lives. We don't have to wait. We can go now. We don't have to go to a mediator, a priest, to have us speak on behalf of God. We can go to God ourselves because the door, the veil that separated us has been ripped in half. When Jesus died on that cross, that veil that separated us was ripped. It tore it in half, the Bible says. And actually, when you look at that word, that word tore, that, that, that word would to tear is violent. It was a violent tear. It wasn't like, oh, I'm just going to tear it a little bit, just quietly. He took that and ripped it off. And he said, come to me. Come to me. I have made your way. So that is the message that the Gentiles are hearing. That is the message that is sending them into such a stir that they are overwhelmed with the idea that God has accepted them. And let me be bluntly clear that some of you have to realize that that same God longs for you. That same God that chose the Gentiles to, to come into their fold as messed up and as dirty and as unchosen as they might have been, he made room and he, he, he intended for Jesus to be for all people. The Jewish nation, the, Jew, the Israelites, were meant to bring forth the name of Jesus into the New Testament times so that people would recognize him. He chose them, not because he, they were some great people, because they did some, some crazy messed up stuff. If you read the Old Testament, if you, ever read, if you ever want to do something, read the Old Testament as fast as you possibly can, like in huge chunks. Because what you'll see is you'll see their unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness over and over and over. It's like... I, it's like just a repeated theme. They're unfaithful because they're going around doing things with idols and other crazy stuff and setting up all these, um, you know, idol poles and doing, uh, worshiping idol gods. And then God has to come back and, and, and refresh them and restore them and renew them. He's faithful and we were not. I don't know if that's the same story of now, but man, God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. He is not expecting you to depend on your faithfulness. He's expecting you and desiring you to depend on his. See, we're going to fail. We're going to mess up. And while that doesn't give us some type of excuse to just mess up on purpose, in fact, Paul, um, in other books of the Bible, talked about the, uh, this idea so much that he actually had to say, it doesn't mean sin on purpose. He, he extolled God's grace so 
enormously that he had to warn people, don't sin on purpose just so you can find more grace. He made God's grace so appealing, so amazing, so miraculous that he didn't want people to think that they could just sin just to experience more grace. That would be silly. Dude, I went and killed someone and now I feel grace. Woo! Who else can I kill? I want some grace. Come here. I want grace. You know, like that would be weird. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, experience his grace because you're going to mess up and he's going to give you grace and you're going to mess up and he's going to give you grace. The Holy Spirit will help you grow. He'll guide and teach and reveal and convict. The difference between guilt and conviction, by the way, is guilt pushes you away from God. Conviction draws you close to him. Guilt says, I'm not good enough. Conviction says, God's good enough. So here's the two things I want to, I want to ask you some questions as we kind of close this out, as we look at this chapter. Going back to that story with the sorcerer, I want to just ask you some, a really pointed question. What are some things that the enemy is whispering in your ear that is causing you to pay no attention to the gospel? What is the thing that the enemy wants to remind you of about your past or wants to confuse you about your future or wants to destroy about your present that he's going to rip everything he can out of your life so that the gospel message doesn't resonate deep inside your heart? What is the enemy whispering in your ear that stops you from embracing and engaging with the God of this universe? I don't know what that might be for you. What part of the gospel is the enemy trying to divert your attention from? Maybe it's that Jesus can forgive you. Maybe for some reason... Some of you might think, man, this great God is really good for some people, but I don't know how he would forgive me. You're the person he came to forgive just because of that reason. Maybe it's that Jesus wants to forgive you. Maybe you're thinking, man, why would he want to forgive someone like me? He does. The other side of this is that I want to encourage you is that those of you that have people in your life that you're proclaiming the gospel message to, that you're explaining who Jesus is to, that you're sharing this message to, for those of you that are doing that, realize that the enemy is whispering in their ear the direct opposite of what you're saying. Don't be discouraged when people deny the the gospel. Pray for them. Please do not be offended when people reject the gospel. Please because they, have, they don't have the Holy Spirit living in them, convicting them. They don't have the Holy Spirit into the, in them, directing them. In fact, they have a spirit of fear. They have a spirit of, of damnation. Um, they have a spirit, uh, uh, they're only, they only have the father of lies to listen to, which is the enemy. Somehow the Lord has to get into that and, and wipe that out and rip that up. Please don't give up. That's my encouragement to you. If you're preaching and speaking and helping people know who Jesus is, don't give up. Pray for them. Because the God of this world, which is the enemy, God of heaven is God, the God of this world is whispering the exact opposite of what you're trying to share. Now to be even more bold and cut right to the heart, if you're not sharing that message, please start. If you're going to work every day and nobody even knows you're a Christian, there's something wrong with that. Now, I don't mean you have to be the kooky person who runs around and just yells at everybody, but there's ways to proclaim the gospel. There's ways to share your faith. There's ways to extend a helpful hand to people in the name of Jesus and give him honor in doing it. Because remember what happened with the governor. He was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. 
People will not be astonished by you. And if they are astonished by you, then they're just going to follow you. It's when the Lord does something in their heart that then they begin to truly follow. So I just, I just say, let the Lord do what he's going to do and you do what the Lord has asked you to do. But remember, the opposite of what you're saying is being spoken to their ears. And the last thing I want to actually ask you, if our worship team come up, we're going to close in a song and uh, just uh, kind of reflect on some of this stuff. But what are some, this is uh, going to the idea of the other side where he, they were at the church, they were at the synagogue. What are some unhealthy expectations that you've put on yourself? Are you allowing yourself to grasp and experience the grace of God or are you trying really hard to, plead, to, to, to impress God? Are your works a way to get to heaven or has God called you into his fold and you simply are doing his will? Because there's two ways to look at that. What are unhealthy expectations you've put on yourself? See, the Gentiles were set free because the work was complete. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. At the end of your life, nothing is going to matter here. (laughs) I'm just telling you, straight up, all the things we worry about, all the things we're anxious about, everything that keeps us up at night, in heaven, gone, done, ended. I say start now. I say let that seep into your brain. Think about who Jesus is, the victory that's won over him, and let it resonate in your heart. And let him set you free of whatever it is that you're going to be set free of later. Let him set you free now. Give it to him. Submit yourself to him. Surrender yourself to him. Because our failures are great, but his grace is mighty. And the last thing I need to ask you, which is a dangerous question, is what are some expectations you're putting on others that are damaging their ability to hear the gospel? What are some unneeded standards that you're placing on people that have nothing to do with entering the gospel, have nothing to do with being, becoming a Christian, but you're placing it in front of them as an obstacle to say, once you can jump that hurdle, then maybe God will accept you. Dude, the life-giving message of the gospel is that anybody can come in an instantaneous moment and the Holy Spirit will do the work. That is why we choose the gospel, right? Isn't that why we follow the gospel? Because of its un relentless pursuit of our good at the expense of God. Everything God did was at the expense of himself for us. That's a miraculous and awesome message. That's why Jesus says, my burden is light because I did all the work. You get the benefit. Let's stand and pray. And as we sing today, I want you to think to yourself, which part of that do I need to really start to think about? Do I need to think about, man, I need to really come to grips with the fact that God is a gracious God? I really need to come to, the, come to my senses about the idea that I cannot work my way into heaven. And you just need to experience some victory over something in your life that you have just grown anxious and burdened and heavy about. Jesus wins. Actually, Jesus won. Jesus wins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we just worship you, I pray that you would speak clearly to our hearts. Reveal to us your victory, that your victory is in your gospel, and that, God, sometimes we can get off track and we can think about other things. 
And just like uh, Luke tries to do with his friend here, Theophilus, he wants him to see how mighty, how great, how miraculous Jesus truly is. That he is not dead, but he is truly alive. And God, right now as we sing, as we worship, you can speak to our hearts and you can produce that, that life in us. You said that you wanted to give us life and life abundantly. God, help us to be ready for that abundant life. Help us to be willing to accept it and to embrace it and to be called out of our life that we're living now and into a new life of serving you. We love you, Jesus. Somehow moving us today in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. Let's sing.
Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for what you've done for us. God, I pray that there is just people in this place who are just, that might be just fed up with feeling the way that they feel on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, God. Sometimes we can even fear coming to church because we're not really sure, um, am I going to feel overjoyed? Am I going to feel like there's more pressure put on me? God, your gospel is, is victorious. Your gospel gives life. It never takes it from us. So God, I pray that you would really put the purity of the gospel in our hearts, that you have already won. You have already won. And God, somehow that would change who we are, how we live each day, what we think about our circumstances, how we interpret things around us, God, that we would not be people that have fear, that are timid, but that are bold. We have the God of this universe living inside of us. How could we, God? How could we fail? You will win. So God, I pray that we would be removed from any of the complacency we have, any of the feelings of failure we have, and that your gospel would produce in us conviction that would draw us close to you because you are a forgiving God. And in a a moment's notice, we can just be wiped clean and walk away a different person, never looking back, never regretting. Lord, the only time we'll ever regret is when we say no. So help us say yes, God. As we leave this place, remind us of these things today and through this week. Put people in our lives that will remind us and help us to be a reminder for others because we need to be remember what your gospel says because we forget. Life hits us hard, God, when mon- Monday morning rolls around. Sometimes the stuff we say now is left on Sunday. Help us to remember. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, Amen, amen. Our altars will be open if you guys want to come up and just pray and uh, just uh, seek God. And, uh, but other than that, you are free to go. Go in God's grace.